Uh, We're going to be just looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Typically, we do, as you know, if you've been here any amount of time, expositional sermons through books of the Bible. But for this season of Advent, we're taking a break from our study in the Gospel of John and and looking at uh, particularly the women in the line of Jesus and how uh, in Matthew chapter 1 here in this lineage, it sort of highlights the way in which God is gracious to use anyone. Um, We're going to be, like I said, in Matthew chapter 1. So uh, we're looking at the genealogy of Jesus, specifically, again, looking at the women who show up in the family tree of Jesus and how God uses those who we and who Israel would not necessarily expect in this lineage. So if you're able to, would you please stand with me? I'm going to read aloud as you follow along. Just the first a few verses of Matthew chapter 1 as we look again at this family tree together. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Uh, Matthew, the apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That is the word of God. You may be seated. May it be a blessing to you as you've heard it read aloud in both its Old and New Testament context this morning. Do you join me once again in prayer? Father, it is indeed a joy and a privilege to get to gather together around your word. And we do pray this morning that as we open it, we would be reminded once again that this is your inspired word, inspired by the Holy Spirit in the original autographs. And now, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would attend to our time, illuminating our eyes and our hearts to the realities, to the truths that we study together this morning. And Lord, that you would bring application to that. Lord, we know that there are are likely those in our midst who do not know you. Their, their own spirit has not been quickened, has not been made alive by your spirit. And so we pray this morning that the conviction of the Holy Spirit uh, to righteousness would go forth and would, by your power, regenerate them, Lord, bringing them from li- uh, death to life, taking their stony hearts and making them hearts of flesh, that you would impart to them repentance and faith so that they would turn from their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Now, Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Steve mentioned earlier uh, this idea that uh, when we gather at times of holiday, sometimes we have struggles with our family. Family times can be interesting. Families are funny things to begin with. You can have such friction against certain family members, maybe especially if you grew up with siblings like I did with one sibling, you have this friction and uh, until somebody picks on them, then all of a sudden you're their greatest defender. You're going to come to their defense. 
Families are interesting things. All of us have family stories. All of us have family history. All of us have a family tree that we can trace back. Some, maybe you've been adopted, so it's been a little bit more difficult for you to trace that family lineage back. One of my good friends here in the Peoria area, Pastor Gary Gear, was adopted. And so he, in the last few years, has been able to trace out his family lineage and to find his birth mom. Uh, by the time he actually found out who she was, she had passed away. But he's been able to connect with his uh, biological siblings and <clears throat> share the gospel with them. And uh, maybe your family tree is easy to trace. Maybe you have somebody in your family who's done all the work uh, on the websites and been able to trace out uh, that lineage and and you can you know figure out who your relatives were from the 1400s or something along those lines. And, and as we do those kinds of things, or even as we only know maybe that family that's close by, there may be uh, part of our family history that we're ashamed of, some family secret that no one talks about uh, because it is uh, shameful. Well, what we realize as we open the Word of God in Matthew chapter 1 this morning is that the family lineage, the family genealogy of Jesus is no different. I don't know if these things were ever talked about at family gatherings. Um, In fact, I would tend to think that family history was talked about more back then than it is today. Uh, But ultimately, we should not be surprised to find that the incarnated Son of God who comes into humanity, who puts on human flesh, has a checkered family background. Uh, Because that is how it all began in the first place. Uh, We can trace our lineage somehow uh, and ultimately back to the garden. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, where indeed the very reason that Christ had to come is found. Uh, All of humanity is plunged into wickedness and sinfulness in that moment that Adam and Eve do not take God at his word, uh, the moment that they disobey him, the moment that they think that satisfaction comes outside of God's commands. And so we can all trace a checkered family history and past back to Adam and Eve, the very next heirs, uh, as it were. Um, We remember uh, Cain and Abel, do we not? The very tragic end to Abel's life by his own brother, uh, out of what seems like perhaps jealousy for Abel's sacrifice being accepted and Cain's sacrifice not being accepted. And uh, the Lord even uh, says to Cain, um, be careful, sin is crouching at your door. You need to rule over it or it will rule over you. And we find this pattern, dear ones, don't we, throughout the history of humanity, that sin continues to rule over mankind. And so we should not be surprised when we open Matthew chapter 1 and see a lineage of sinfulness, because that is how it all began. That is the reason for uh, the Lord coming into the world to begin with. And yet we are surprised maybe to find the names of five females 
who show up here because of the way that they might have been perceived by those who would have read Matthew chapter 1, especially a Jewish audience. Not that the name of a female showing up in any sort of lineage would be a surprise at all, but why is it not Sarah, uh, her name that shows up here? Or even Leah or Rachel, whose names show up here. It is interesting to think through these ones whose names have appeared. And yet we come to this at a time of the year where we're thinking about the coming of Christ because we celebrate that at this time. When we consider Christmas, we generally think about the coming of Jesus in a manger, in a trough, and all the parts that immediately surround that event, and that indeed is important. However, Matthew and Luke, both by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, find it important to tell us about Jesus' family tree And what we find in Matthew's record is indeed of particular interest for us once again. This morning, we saw both Tamar and Rahab last week. And we'll look today at a couple of others before we get to Mary next week. The main point this morning is this. You'll see this written on your worship folder if you turn that over. God is gracious to bring about redemption using the means that he decrees for the sake of his glory. And we really could stop just even at that first phrase, couldn't we? God is gracious to bring about redemption at all. Uh, For we are those who are undeserving. Grace and mercy, by their very definition, imply that we are undeserving. Because if they were not what they are, they would not be grace or mercy. But God, in his grace and mercy, unfolds for us throughout the history of the world and what we see in Scripture in this great biblical theology, if you will, His means by which He decrees these things to come to pass. That is for the sake of His glory. So we'll see this morning two more women and those involved along with them in these events that point to God's sovereignty in the coming of Messiah. Two more women. The first we see is this. The Gentile follower named Ruth. The Gentile follower named Ruth. We see her show up here in our text, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5. We see that Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And what we discover, and and many of you are familiar with the story of Ruth, and you can turn back to that. We're obviously not going to go through the entire book this morning, though it isn't that long. But we'll make some references to it this morning. What we find as we consider Ruth is the illegitimate nature of Ruth's situation is a little harder to nail down than those we looked at last week. If nothing else, it has to do with the fact that she was a Gentile who ends up marrying a wealthy Jewish landowner. Ruth's story is one that is usually well known by most because it is said to be uh, the perfect love story. And uh, it has been um, romanticized, if you will, in that way. Um, Though, uh, when you really think about it, um, I don't know how many of you have ever Uh, courted your uh, soon-to-be husband by uncovering his feet and then laying down at the foot of his bed. I don't know how that's the perfect love story, but anyway. But again, we may be struck with, as we 
open our Bibles, and maybe you're doing a, a yearly Bible reading, and you get to the book of Ruth, and you think, why in the world is this event singled out? Why is this family brought to light? I mean, they're not royalty. Uh, they're not in any way highlighted other than the fact that they show up here in this section of the scriptures. And uh, actually, it shows up in a little bit of a different place in the Hebrew Old Testament ordering, uh, the way that the, the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, is uh, laid out. But it is interesting that in our English Bibles, it does come after Judges. Uh, but look there at the first few verses, and we'll begin to see how and why this unfolds in the way it does. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malhan and Chilion. Uh, please, parents, spare us from having to learn those names for your children, if, you just, if you're having more children. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, notice, in Judah. Notice he was a man from Bethlehem in Judah as well. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the names the name of the one was Orpah, not Oprah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the women the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Why does this show up where it does in the Scriptures? Well, certainly, it is a silver lining in an age where men, and particularly Israel, were acting in great and rebellious ways against the Lord. In the book of Judges, it says that every man did what was right in his own eyes. And uh, this was the flavor, the tenor of the time of the Judges. We see this cyclical pattern in the book of Judges where there are those who the Lord raises up to see that Israel would repent of their egregious sins against the Lord. They would repent, the Lord would bless them, and before long they would fall back into sinful patterns once again. So in the midst of this really dark, and if you want to see how dark exactly it is, read through the book of Judges and then read the book of Ruth. But in the midst of this very, very dark time when men were doing only what was right in their own eyes, and it says, and there was no king in the land, that didn't mean necessarily that had there been a king, things would be better. In fact, we see kings making things much worse. There in the midst of this comes this event that highlights that there were still those, the remnant of God in Israel, who decided that, they loved the Lord and would obey the Lord, specifically one named Boaz. The irony of the events of Ruth is that it, is, it mirrors the issue with Israel in some ways. It is set up as an opposite to the problem of Israel. Israel's issue in the book of Judges was that they were intermarrying with Gentiles and adopting their gods. That's what continued to be the problem. That's why they kept spiraling downward in the book of Judges. 
The cyclical pattern I mentioned is a downward spiral into worse and worse things. And it goes from sort of the national level of things down to the individual level. And and men's hearts were dark. They were intermarrying. They were worshiping other gods. Ruth, on the other hand, makes a decision to follow Yahweh before she ever even meets her husband. She decides when her mother-in-law says... uh, to her, in verse 11 of chapter 1, Turn back, my daughter. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my wombs that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord Yahweh has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and Ruth, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, that's, Naomi said, see, your, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord Yahweh do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Verse 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. She determines to follow Yahweh God. (laughs) In the face and opposition of Israel who is turning away from Yahweh God, here is a Gentile Moabitess who is saying, I will follow Yahweh God. And so we see this silver stream of hope that walks from Moab back into Israel where things are dark, but for, at least in the telling of Ruth, one man who is following Yahweh God, Boaz. Having this inside track, we know that this was done legitimately, the kinsman-redeemer motif. We, We see that Um, Because of Naomi's relation to Boaz, um, he is able to redeem both um, Naomi and Ruth and to take them in. Because if you were a widow in those days, guess what? You were destitute. If you could not find a family member to care for you, you would die of destitution. So Naomi returns to Israel and says, no longer call me Naomi, call me Mara which means bitter. She had some heart problems with Yahweh God. But here is Ruth following her into the land of Israel. From a sort of legitimate standpoint, this is the way things ought to go. We know there's another Redeemer who stands in the way. But listen to what it says in Deuteronomy 23 and verse 3. Here's the illegitimacy of this. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. When you are an Israelite reading Matthew chapter 1, and you get... You get the idea that Matthew is tracing out the lineage of the Messiah and you get past 
Tamar and you get past Rahab and you get to Ruth, you are just slamming on the brakes and saying, hang on a second. What is this? Ruth is a Moabitess and therefore a Gentile. In fact, truth be told, all but Mary are Gentiles who have one way or another been brought into Israel from this group of women that we're looking at. Again, we see this reality that God uses those whom we would not. But then it it reflects the mirror back upon us and says, who are we in order that we might even make that sort of judgment? All of us are birthed from the same lineage. From the garden, we come into the world as sinners. Romans chapter 5. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And we know that all are sinners because all die. It's the same lineage to one thing or another. But see, in the Jewish mind, there are hierarchies, right? Of course, all are sinners, but some are better than others. Why in the world would God bring His Savior, His Messiah, through these You know, another question we might ask is, as we reflect upon this, who did Jesus choose as his followers? Fishermen, tax collectors, and in the modern vernacular, terrorists. Fishermen, the lowest of the low, just a bit higher than shepherd, who, by the way, were the ones who proclaimed the birth of Messiah. Tax collectors, hated by all because they were traitors. They desired to rob money from their own people for the sake of the government and then keep a little for themselves. Why do I say terrorists? Because the sons of thunder were Zionists who said, Lord, should we call down lightning upon those ones who are doing that over there? They were known to be killers. Those who were despised in that society. Here we see in the line of Messiah a Gentile outcast who God graciously redeems through Boaz and whom God uses to bring the Messiah into the world. The gentleness and love and honor that Boaz shows Ruth in bringing her into his home and uh, making her his wife. He redeems her. He redeems her from certain death. He redeems her from her stigma as a Gentile, as a Moabitess, along with her mother-in-law. And God shows His grace and mercy through that situation and rescuing them. And through her, not only comes the king, (laughs) David, but also the king of kings, the Messiah the Lord Jesus. Believer, I want to call you this morning to recognize the grace of God in your life. As I call you to that, I'm calling myself to that. We are so undeserving. What we do deserve is the wrath of God for our sin. What we get instead is the love and righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. Jesus is our Redeemer. 
He has saved us from certain destruction. He has saved us by virtue of His perfect life, His obedience to the Father and living perfectly, His obedience in going to the cross and dying in the stead of sinners and by being raised again. He has redeemed us. Praise be to His name, dear ones. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world comes in ways that we would not expect, comes to places we would not expect, is born in a stable, the king of the universe. Why would we expect his lineage to be any different? I call to you unbelievers today, recognize God's grace and come to him. My plea to you today is that you would say, yes, I am a sinner, just like that preacher up there. And I need to be forgiven. I need to be rescued. You say, Jason, you don't understand. You don't understand the sins that I have sinned. You don't understand the ways in which I have grieved a holy and righteous God. It's not important that I understand it. It's that God understands it and that He rescues sinners who have done the worst sins that we can imagine. My call to you is to repent, to turn from that sin, and to place your faith and trust in Christ. You're right. God cannot accept you based on you. He only accepts you because of the perfect life of Christ and His death and resurrection. Well, let's take a look at our next example. We see the unnamed spouse. The unnamed spouse. And if we're familiar with the scriptures, we know who this is. But turning back to Matthew chapter 1, we see it again. Notice again in verse 5, And Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And we know from 2 Samuel chapter 11 that this is Bathsheba. And here we find someone whose name is not included at all. But we know the name of her husband. More than anything, this seems to honor her husband who was murdered by her illegitimate lover, The king who had him murdered. And it's, you know, a mystery to us why her name is not included, but Uriah's is. Maybe it's just simply for that honor. There have been other theories given. But but overall, the curious thing about this scandal is that it includes the pinnacle person in the prophecy of the coming of Messiah. It's King David. David is the one to whom the promise is made in regard to the kingship of Messiah. It is most important that the Messiah come through David's lineage. How did the Messiah get there? It's unorthodox from our perspective, isn't it? If you're unfamiliar with these events, let me state them briefly from 2 Samuel 
chapter 11. I'm just going to paraphrase what happens there. One afternoon, David, instead of being out in battle where he should have been, as king goes for a walk on his roof and sees a beautiful woman bathing. David lusts after her and desires to have her, though she is someone else's wife. He goes to bed with her. He gets her pregnant and tries to have her husband come home so he can claim that the baby would be Uriah's rather than his own. Uriah refuses to go in and sleep with his wife, so David tries again. He has him for a big party. He says, let's get this guy uh, drunk, and then maybe he'll go home. He gets him drunk, sends him home. He doesn't go home. He just stays in the barracks with the men who had accompanied him home. Accompanied him home. So then David has to do the ultimate in the cover-up of his sin, and he has to have this man murdered. Sends him to the front lines in the battle, and he's killed. Not only is he sent to the front lines, David says, pull the troops back so he's the only one there. This is extremely intentional. David is eventually confronted about this by the prophet Nathan by him using a story and he says, I want to tell you something, king. There was a man who owned one sheep. There was a man who owned many sheep. The man who owned the one sheep loved this sheep, cared for this sheep, did everything he could for this sheep. The sheep was as if it was a part of the family. The man with many sheep had some people show up for a dinner and rather than take one of his own sheep, he took the precious sheep of the man who cared so much for it and gave that sheep instead. And David said, as surely as I live this day, this man will die for what he has done. And Nathan the prophet takes his old, wrinkled, bony finger and sticks it in David's face and says, you are the man. As a result of your sin with Bathsheba, as a result of your sin against Uriah and having him murdered, the baby that is in her womb after it is born will die. That's what happens. Much more turmoil than this occurs in David's life. From this we learn many things, but certainly that sin has consequences. But that God in His great plan even uses and subverts the sins of mankind to accomplish His decree. The baby that resulted from this sin did not live, but David made Bathsheba his wife. And the next baby who would become the wisest man who ever lived would be born. That was Solomon. Again, we see God's grace and mercy. What David could not forecast is that God would use this at first sinful union to bring about the Messiah. Once again, I ask you, are you worried about sin too grievous for God to forgive? He uses the adulterer and murderer David and the one whom he sinned against Bathsheba to bring their Savior 
the one who, for, who can forgive them of these sins into the world. We need to trust God's provision. You see, we're all about that, aren't we? We, we? we many times are like those Jewish people who would have read Matthew chapter 1 and said, not me, God. No way. Would I ever do something as horrible as what Judah and Tamar did or what David and Bathsheba did? No way, Lord, would I do those things. And many times we're surprised, aren't we, by the depth of our own sin? We're great Pharisees. Look at that guy over there. At least I'm not like him. And the grace of God and His mercy continues to remind us and refresh us daily. No, you're just like them. Remember the words of Jesus? Anytime you're caught saying, at least I'm not like David having murdered someone. Remember Jesus said, if you hate someone in your heart, it's as if you've murdered them. At least I'm not like David or Judah and and having these sexual relationships outside of marriage. Anytime you lust, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, anytime you lust after a woman, it's as if you've committed adultery in your heart. It all goes back to the heart. And our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. And yet God takes that stony heart and he turns it to flesh. And so if you're sitting there today and you're saying, Jason, I am I'm worse than the things that you have said. You are not beyond God's grace. Hear me. Hear the word of God. You are not beyond God's grace. Jesus died for the worst of the worst because that's where we all are. All the ground at the foot of the cross becomes level. Because God pours out His wrath on the eternal Son of God for sinners like you and me. As believers, we need to trust in the provisions of God, His grace and mercy, His love for us, the gospel, the good news that Jesus did indeed die for us and rose again so that we can live in newness of life. We need to trust in His provisions. When we think about practical things like what we've read today, His provision of a wife or a husband that God has given us so that we would not run after things that we think are going to satisfy when they will not because God has been our ultimate satisfaction As an unbeliever today, I want you to trust the provision God has made on your behalf by sending His perfect Son through imperfect people. You have not done anything that God cannot forgive. My call to you today is to turn from that sin and trust in Christ alone. This time of year is not only to meditate and worship the One who was born, but to recognize the reality of His first and second coming. Turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2. We'll end with this this morning. Philippians chapter 2. Paul, in instructing the church in Philippi, is seeking to show them and call them to humbly be of the same mind, to care and serve for one another, 
to put one another first. And as he does this, his illustration, his example to them is the Lord Jesus Christ. So as he does, look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, as we're talking about being humble toward one another and serving one another and looking out not only for our own interests but for the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now let me just pause for a moment and say this. If you're in Christ, Paul has just given you ownership of this in Christ. In other words, because you are united to Christ, because his active obedience, his obedience to the law of God has fulfilled everything, not a jot or tittle is left unfulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is saying, if you are in Christ, these things are yours. You can practice these things, not because of anything you have done, but because of what Christ has done. So pay attention. Who, though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Probably a better translation of that is a thing to be paraded about. In other words, um, Jesus did not walk around in full Shekinah glory throughout the world. He looked like a human because he is a human. He is both God and man. That glory is unveiled for a a, a little bit on, on the Mount of Transfiguration, but to see Jesus walk around, you would say, there goes a Jewish man. Now, when you see the, the things that he did, you would say there's something more here. But he did not parade about the fact that he was the Son of God. He did say that he was, but he did not parade this about. But emptied himself, probably a better translation of that, and I'm like changing all the translation here, um, calling into question how the ESV translation committee did this. But I think it's better to say he made himself of no reputation. Those two things go together. He did not parade about His deity, he made himself of no reputation by taking the form of a servant. Because is he a servant? Well, he is, but he's also the Lord of the universe. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Listen to what it says here. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice We're going to notice two things here. We're going to notice humiliation and exaltation. This is what we're talking about in this time of the year. We're talking about his humiliation. His incarnation is a humiliating, a humbling thing because he's the eternal God, the eternal Son of God, and yet he comes to earth and he puts on humanity. And being found in the... Likeness of men, he obeys God to the point of death, even a cross kind of death. What kind of a death? Did people die worse kinds of death? Certainly they did. There were, there were worse ways to die than on a cross. But what is the symbol of the cross? The symbol of the cross in, in those days was humiliating. It was nakedness, being hung in front of crowds to be able to be seen and mocked and jeered at just for the common criminal. And here is the Lord of the universe, born into humanity, born in a trough, raised in a small little hick town. Does anything good come out of Nazareth? Is this not Jesus, the carpenter's son? Who is he? What kind of authority does he have? Put on display publicly, naked and beaten. 
And the worst possible part being that in those hours on the cross, he received the wrath that sinners like you and I deserved. Humiliated in the incarnation. But wait. Exalted by God. Look at what it says. Therefore, verse 9, God has, because of these things, therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Son of God took on humanity and was given a name. He did not have that name before He came to the world. And now, when you hear that name, there's no mistaking what goes along with it. The incarnation, the humiliation, the cross, the resurrection... And you may say, or people may say, he's not any of those things. But one day is coming when there's a second coming. And he will make a second advent and he will show up. And there will be no questions any longer. No one will question Is he lunatic, liar, or Lord? They will know for certain he is Lord. And for some it will be too late. He has been exalted. And to that I say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Do you not also long for his second advent? If you cannot say with certainty that you long for that, my plea to you is to recognize when we talk about his advent, we're referring both to his first and second coming. His first coming dealing with sin and redeeming mankind through the cross. The next coming will deal with mankind through judgment and only those who are in him will stand. Repent and believe today. If you are in Christ, are you trusting God's ways? Are you submitting to the way God has planned things. It may not look like what you think it ought to look like. It may look very messed up like the genealogy of the Lord. But are you submitting and saying, Lord, I don't understand this. I don't really know what's next, but you do and I trust you. I'm going to follow you. It is not according to your ideal situation, but according to the way God will make you into the image of Christ and bring glory to himself. And then lastly, my, my plea to us as a body is to walk with each other in this life, through this life. Covenanted together saying, yes, we are marching to Zion, the city of the Lord. And one day he's going to come and grab us and take us the rest of the way. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess this morning our inability to grasp all of the ways in which you work and those whom you would use 
Lord, help that to reflect back upon ourselves and our desire to worship you because we know if we are in Christ, you have rescued sinners such as us. And it was through the means of your Son coming to this world and putting on humanity through a messed up genealogy, just like the rest of us, back to the garden. We needed the second Adam. If death came through one man, salvation came through the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we rely fully upon you, Lord Jesus, today. And for those who don't know you, I pray that today would be the day that they would turn from their sin and believe. And Lord, may we link arms and march together to Zion, pointing each other as we struggle through this life to the King. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.